The Diecast Movie Podcast proudly presents James Whale Retrospective Series, where we will be discussing the life, work, and legacy of director James Whale, with guest appearances from filmmakers, film historians, and other podcasters. We would like to give a special thank you to Reber Clark for the intro music. Please enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. And we are starting our James Whale retrospective with this episode. The retrospective is going to be covering his life and times, the movies, and I'm going to have a roundtable at the end to discuss the impact that Mr. Whale had on film in general. And I think the best way to start off this episode is with the offer of James Whale, A New World of Gods and Monsters, Mr. James Curtis. How are you doing, Mr. Curtis? Hi, Stephen. I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing really well. We're recording this, uh, for listeners know, at the end of August of 2021. So we're both in, um, I'm in a hot, humid day. I think you're having a hot day. Yeah, it's not so humid today, but it's, uh, they're threatening it'll be more humid this next week. Usually we're pretty lucky out here. We have dry heat. And the good thing for people listening to this, you'll be hearing this in October. So it should be nice, crisp fall days, we hope. And, uh, as we start that retrospective and, you know, from October all the way into next year, I mean, it's going to be um, at least eight to 10 episodes, but you started writing um, different things about James Whale. You've also had Spencer Tracy, WC Fields. What led you to go into wanting to research all this and find out more and put these, uh, these people into the book so we can read these facts and learn about them? Well, you know, I was exposed to these people on television when I was a kid. I watched a lot of TV, and it was back in the days of VHS where uh, you had uh, seven channels out here in Los Angeles, which was extraordinary, and everything got thrown into the mix. Nowadays, everything's so uh, vertical that, uh, you, you know, if you want to seek out old movies or country theme stuff or whatever, uh, or game shows, for God's sake, there are channels that are devoted just to that, and that's all that you get. And uh, back then, it was a real uh, cornucopia, and, and good, good as a matter of fact. Uh, so you got old movies along with game shows and talk shows and everything else, and they're all just mixed in together. So I saw a lot of this stuff, and some of it was better than others, but... Uh, uh, and I didn't understand why some were better and some were not. But uh, I saw a lot of stuff as I got older. I remembered liking it. And so when you have a chance to revisit something like that, uh, if it holds up and not all of it does, but if, it's, if it holds up, then you think, well, um, that's a solid piece of work. You know, wh who was behind that? And so that that kind of in a nutshell is what uh, led me in uh, the direction I went is that uh, all these people are people that uh, I discovered when I was a kid. And that includes Mort Saul, for instance. I, I was quite fascinated with him when I first saw him on uh, Los Angeles television in the 60s at his own show. 
um, James Wales films, the same same thing, et cetera, et cetera. Spencer Tracy. Uh, I first saw him, I think, in Inherit the Wind on television. Oh, one of our uh, favorite movies. Yeah, great film. And uh, and then um, I had the great fortune on the occasion of my 10th birthday in 1963 being taken to the Cinerama Dome here in Hollywood to see It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World. And, uh, and uh, there was Spencer Tracy. I knew everybody else in the film. I wasn't sure about him. And... Uh, uh, but, uh, I, I think that's one of the great experiences in my childhood was to have been able to see the film under that condition, under those circumstances, reserve seat, all of that. And, uh, two days later, John Kennedy was shot. It's amazing when you bring up those two movies, because we've our first mm-hmm. episode of the uh, our first movie review was inherit the wind, which my son yeah. Ben picked out from the die rolls. And then uh-huh. last year. We did It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, and we went crazy and had a bunch of different podcasters and filmmakers put in different segments talking about different aspects of the movie as we did an ongoing review of the movie, and it ended up being like a three-hour episode, which fits the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it fits the movie is right. Uh, uh, Yeah, when I was doing the Spencer Tracy book, I gathered a lot of material on that film, and I couldn't use it all because it didn't relate specifically to him. Uh, but uh, uh, I'll have to do something with that stuff someday. Uh, not sure quite what yet, but uh, uh, I've been lucky to develop material in that film that uh, I should use somewhere. Out of all of us that were on that podcast, none of us got to see it the way it was meant to be seen, except for you. Um, I can only imagine seeing it in, in the way it was meant to be, you know, presented and stuff like that. It, it, mm-hmm. Cause the rest of us are seeing it on TV. If, if you're, if you're lucky, you get to see a revival of it on a, you know, a, a movie theater, but not the screens and the, and the justice it was supposed to be, it was filmed in. So I could, I can only imagine what yeah. it was like. Well, uh, you can actually experience it because when they redid the Cinerama Dome a few years ago, there was a there was a concern for a while that they were going to tear it down. It's a geodesic dome. They they built a few of them around the country. There was one in Las Vegas that is gone now. Um, I think there are two left now. One being down here, and they decided to go all in. And instead of tearing it down, they retrofitted it so they could actually run Cinerama in it. And that sounds strange, but. Uh, when they built the Cinerama Dome, they were transitioning to a single-lens Cinerama, which was widescreen 70 millimeters, anamorphic 70 millimeters, the way I should put it. So, so you get roughly the same effect, but you don't have the three projectors going simultaneously. Well, they retrofitted it so that they could indeed have three projectors and do the actual Cinerama experience. Um, not all those pictures exist, but a lot of them do. Uh, my wife and I went to see how the West was one there, which was a traditional three camera cinerama, uh, narrated by Spencer Tracy, incidentally. And, um, just to see what it was like, I had never seen it in three camera, but, um, um, but the Cinerama Dome has closed recently because, uh, the owner of Pacific theaters, they went went out of business in effect. 
Um, we don't know exactly who's going to take it over. They're certainly not going to do away with it. It's a very profitable enterprise from what I, I understand. And uh, they had gotten in the habit of every year and a half or so uh, extending the screen. They had to do some things to the interior of it, and they would run Cinerama the way it was meant to be seen for a period of, say, a week and a half, two weeks. you buy reserve seats and go in there, and they would run Mad World as part of it. And they would have ahead of time a panel of some of the surviving cast members. Well, that panel has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller in subsequent years. And I think there's one person left from the cast, and that's Barry Chase, who is 85 years old, or probably older than 85. And she came a couple of years ago, last time they did it, and she looked great. Uh, but um, uh, nobody else, I, I mean, at one point, you know, you could see... Uh, uh, Jonathan Winters and people like that, they would come. But uh, uh, nowadays, it's very chaste. She's by herself, and uh, she's wonderful. Uh, but when the theater comes back, chances are they'll do it again. So if you want to hop a plane at some point, come out, you can actually sit in the same theater and see it the same way. And they've even got the police calls over the PA system during the intermission. So if you go to the men's room while the intermission is on, you'll hear the police calls that they recorded for the original engagement of it. You have just, you have just made I'm my sorry. day. I mean, now I can, and I know there's a lot of people that now have, an, and some of these guys that were on that podcast live in California. So for them, it's going to, mm-hmm. when this reopens, hopefully reopens up and they can get down there and see it. And they're going to no, yeah. love it. You got to watch for it. Uh, uh, I'm sure it's going to be reopened. I don't know under what circumstances, but they are set up to show these films, and they're very popular these screenings. And so, uh, if uh, that's on your bucket list, then you can go to some trouble and come out. You'll actually be able to sit at the theater and see it. And it will be. I like going because it's the easiest and most convincing way that I know that I can step back to 1963 and. Uh, it's the same environment, the same film, same everything. And uh, it's really quite an experience. I'm looking forward to it now. I think I, I think I now have something to add to my bucket list. And I just, <laughs> just got to pay attention to when it opens back up and then everything playing it just the right way. And uh, Right, right. And, and probably you said it's like usually for like a week, and a, a week and a half. And obviously to do more than one movie, it'd probably be a multi-movie experience for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, they, they run This Is Cinerama, that uh, – uh, 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 how the West was won. Uh, Brothers Grimm, which was three color, three camera. Also, I don't, my understanding is that the elements for that one are not good anymore, and so they can't do that one. But uh, How the West was won was certainly one. Mad World is certainly one. Uh, uh, Wonder, Eight Wonders of the World, I think, is one of them. Uh, they did a series that were essentially like travelogues in the early days in the fifties, and so. Most of those, it's my understanding, uh, exist, and they have shown them in the past. But what they do is say, okay, we've configured the theater to run these things, so here are the dates that these show, films are showing. And, and again, they sell reserve seats. You pick out where you want to sit in the theater, and you pay for that particular seat, which is the way you did it 60 years ago. Amazing. Amazing. Oh, that, that's just that. oh. I, I literally am. You can see, listeners, you can't see this, but he can see how happy I am to hear about this. This is like, <laughs> it, it, it just blew my mind. I, you never know what you're going to find out when you yeah. ask certain questions. And this is like, ooh. <laughs> well, 
now, uh, uh, the co-founder of Microsoft, whose name escapes me at the moment, bought the theater up in Seattle. There's a dome up in Seattle also. I don't follow the programming of that one because I'm not up there, but I know it's there. And they must show Mad World in that theater, too. So you, you have actually maybe two different venues that you could attend. But the one here in Hollywood was built for that film. They, they took something like 18, 20 weeks, and they built it. And the first film to be shown there was Mad World. And it was there for something like a year and a half afterwards. Amazing. Amazing. Now, the books you have written, I said, I said some of the people that are in it, like James Whale, Spencer mm-hmm. Tracy, W.C. Fields. Um, you got Buster Keating coming out. You have a lot of other ones. How did you go about, you said, because these are people you grew up watching TV and stuff. This is such a diverse group of yeah. filmmakers, actors, um, you know, going through. Obviously, you, you, your interests are, well, they're pretty much of your interests are pretty wide, you know, I mean, it's, it's definitely a wide spectrum. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know why it is that way, but these are old people that uh, interested me, you know, and uh, William Cameron Menzies uh, was somebody who I became aware of very early through a film on television called Invaders from Mars, which was made in color, but you only saw it on TV and black and white in those days. And, and you got commercials with it uh but i remember that that really uh had an impression on me at seven years old watching that film for the first time and uh uh when i dug into menzies further and um uh, learned the extent of his influence uh i wanted to see if i could pull something together to really uh document what he did because he essentially invented the process of storyboarding a film, essentially making a film on paper before you do it on film. And uh, uh, Gone with the Wind being the most prominent one, but there was a whole slew of them that he worked on. And uh, Invaders came rather relatively late in his life. But uh, that's another example. I sought out the family, uh, helped gather some of the artwork that he left behind, et cetera. And, and, uh, all that material is now being conveyed to the Motion Picture Academy, the Herrick Library. There will be preserved and uh, made available for future research. Awesome. And for, for listeners to find your books, um, you have a website, correct, that they can look up and see what works you have out there? Yeah, it's jamescurtis.net. And then, of course, uh, uh, there's a page on Amazon, and uh, you can find them at uh, Barnes & Noble, et cetera. So, uh, uh, they're around, and uh, I'm uh, I'm very happy that they've been embraced the way they have. And I'm I'm just happy you've been putting them out. And James Whale, you know, New World and Gods and Monsters. You you were telling me before we started recording this that you started working on it a long time ago. Was it 1975? Yes, that's correct. And and the book came out what year? Well, the first version, the first iteration, it was 1982, <clears throat> and I had no idea what I was doing. I, I wrote two books when I was in college, and to my misfortune, both of them were published. And uh, so I've had to live them down to some degree. The first one, the James Whale book, 
I got so annoyed with it that I went back in the 90s and I decided I would uh, redo it. And uh, essentially the idea was rewrite it, make it look like an adult road. And um, uh, then I thought, well, you know, I could do a few more interviews maybe. And then I thought, well, I should go to England really. And so it became a whole new thing as a result of all of that. And uh, uh, so if anybody out there has the little green scarecrow book, just uh, kindly toss it the trash and buy the new one because uh, uh, it's a lot more uh, authoritative and, uh, and it's one I'm proud of now. I wasn't proud of the earlier one. And I read your book a few years ago and it, I really enjoyed it. And I know some other of our listeners like Jeff Owens and some other people I've talked to have read the book and they enjoyed it also. So it's definitely been a good read. And um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, if anybody's interested in film and in learning about other people in it, go to his website and find about all these other works. But right now we're going to delve into James whale because that's the, obviously a star of the retrospective. And can you talk a little bit about, his beginnings, you know, you know, like what, how he got his start or like, you know, his upbringing and what led him into theater work. Well, he, he was born and reared in an area of England commonly referred to as the black country mining area. Uh, the town he came from was Dudley and, um, he came from a large family. They didn't have a lot of money, uh, essentially a, a impoverished background. Uh, he early on took a liking to art and uh, studied art as he got older and uh, proceeded to do some work on the amateur stage initially. And then especially when he um, was inducted into the armed services during World War I, uh, he was captured by the Germans and uh, was instrumental in putting on plays for the other men when uh, they were at a German prisoner in war camp called Holzminden. Uh, when he got out, he went into the regional theater, Birmingham Rep. Uh, got a photo in the book of him as uh, John Wilkes Booth in uh, the play Abraham Lincoln. And uh, so he spent a lot of time on the stage and behind the scenes in London. He was a designer himself, uh, uh, designed a lot of sets. Um, got into directing, he was an actor as well. So he had a well-rounded background and uh, it was the phenomena journeys in that really kind of brought everything together for him. And uh, it's a play that time, it's time had come at that point. He knew it firsthand because he had lived it. Uh, and uh, as had the author, R.C. Sheriff. And so he wrote that for all it was worth, uh, the initial uh, Sunday Society performances in London. Uh, the West End engagement, the production that brought Colin Clive forth for him. Uh, and uh, then bringing it over to this country, directed the Chicago and New York companies, and then was brought out to do the film. And uh, which was one of the very early German talkies, part German, uh, British talkies, Journey's End, uh, made in association with Gainsborough, but was made here in Los Angeles because we had the equipment. And so, uh, that film got a tremendous amount of attention just before All Quiet on the Western Front came out, kind of overshadowed it afterwards, but he was on his way at that point. And uh, it was his involvement with films of the Great War, uh, Howard Hughes's film, Hell's Angels, uh, 
Journey's End that inspired uh, Universal, Carl Emley Jr. in particular, to seek him out for Waterloo Bridge, which was uh, his first film at Universal, 1931, with uh, May Clark. And uh, marvelous performance by May. And uh, then Frankenstein kind of... I was going to say, didn't Betty Davis have one of her early pictures roles in yeah, Waterloo Bridge? Yeah, she's got a supporting part in it. She's, I think that's her second or third movie. She was, uh, uh, she was under contract at Universal, and uh, Junior Lemley would admit that uh, he didn't care for her too much, and uh, he dropped their contract, uh, dropped her contract, and uh, uh, Warner Brothers picked her up ultimately, as we all know, but. Uh, uh, they had her first and they just didn't know what to do with her. And uh, so, but she, yeah, she is in Waterloo Bridge. I, I assume that will be one you're showing during the course of your uh, your uh, whale retrospective. Yeah, for listeners to uh, know, we're going to be covering a lot of movies, but Journey's End and Waterloo Bridge, we will definitely be, actually going to be the episodes following this one in the retrospective. Okay. We're going to try to go sort of chronological if I can help it. Sometimes with getting different people to co-host and an, an a movie might come earlier in the chronological chronology than, than you'd expect just because of um, certain people when, well, you know, as needs happen. Waterloo is, Waterloo is the one that came before Frankenstein. And uh, the thing, the revelation when I saw it for the first time, just how good May Clark is. It was one of the great unsung performances of early sound. And uh, uh, she was just marvelous in it. Great instinctive actor. And, uh, you can see her some other early 30s things that she did, like uh, the front page, where she's just as magnificent as she was in Waterloo Bridge. But Waterloo Bridge is really a great film. Great film in terms of James Whale's handling of the material, and a great film in terms of May's impersonation or a, a attack on the role of uh, Myra. Oh, yeah. It, uh, I saw the film Waterloo Bridge a while back, and we're, I'm going to be watching it again soon to do the review with it. And to me, it's, that was one of the reasons that wanted me to go to this retrospective of James Whale because everybody always thinks of him, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, and 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 maybe The Old Dark House, but that's about it. They they they, they kind of drop off there. I'm talking about the average film going person, and then some people might remember some other films, but Journey's End and Waterloo Bridge. I think are forgotten by a lot of people unless they have a little bit of a deeper knowledge. They might remember Showboat. Um, and those kind of mm. things, but I think we're go we're definitely going to be hitting some of the films that are um, not normally talked about, and hopefully people can go seek them out and watch them because, as you said, May Clark's performance is 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 great, and if you're a Betty Davis fan, you're going to see her early on in her career, and you can see the trajectory she was going to be taking. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was the thing that interested me initially was. Out here in the mid-1970s, there was an annual film festival called FilmX, and it took place in Century City. They had two theaters in Century City side by side, and FilmX would take over both of them for a period of maybe two weeks, I think, every year in the spring, and they would show films. And it was a combination of new stuff, foreign stuff that's new, and a retrospectives of uh older films and they would pick directors and uh, actors and that sort of thing. I mean, uh, wonderful stuff. And uh, 
And they would sometimes do old night marathons. I remember one time attending a Billy Wilder old night marathon and, uh, he, uh, he, he showed up about midnight in between a couple of films and uh, uh, talked for a few minutes and took some questions. And uh, so there, there was a, it was a fun kind of thing that happened. And in 1975, they declared that they were doing a, a tribute to James Whale. And it was a, there were a couple of evening programs, but a lot of them took place in the afternoon. And I was in college at the time. I was driving a laundry truck, and I got out of work a few days and went in, uh, lived in Orange County, very near uh, Disneyland. And uh, the thing that interested me was they were not just running uh, Frankenstein and Bride and that sort of thing, but they were showing a lot of those earlier different films, different genres that he worked in. And uh, I had not seen any of those. And so it was a chance to kind of get a sense of what he was like dealing with drawing room dramas and mysteries and uh, comedy and that sort of thing, or musical in the case of Showboat. And uh, Showboat was a real event. No one had seen it because uh, it was last theatrically shown in 1936. And then in the late thirties, when they were in a cash crunch, Universal sold a bunch of properties to MGM. Waterloo Bridge was among them and Showboat was among them. And, uh, they eventually made their own version of Showboat in the early 50s. But uh, um, so they sat on the James Whale version for the longest time and no one had seen it. And uh, so that was one of the films I got to see in 75. That was an evening screening, interestingly enough. I think I might say this in the um, in the interview for uh, the Criterion disc, but uh, the larger of the two theaters in Century City was given over one night about eight o'clock, and it was on Saturday night, to, to run Showboat in 35 millimeter. And as I said, it was great anticipation, but the house was packed. There was not an empty seat to be had. Um, a day earlier, Roddy McDowell had interviewed Irene Dunn on the stage, and they had shown clips, including one from Showboat. Uh, so everybody was really stoked to see this. And uh, I got there, we got there, I won't say late, but by the time we got in the theater, the only seats that were available were down front. Uh, I think we were about four or five rows back on the extreme left of the uh, theater on the aisle, I remember. I, was, I, was, I had an aisle seat, my wife was next to me, but there were only about three or four rows in the screen. And to show you, I'll illustrate how hard a ticket this was, in front of me sat Julie Christie. And she was a big deal at that time, and she had an even worse seat than I had. Uh, but Showboat was wonderfully received. And there were several spontaneous bursts of applause, during, including after Old Man River. And it was interesting to me later on, having had that experience, to find a letter in the Paul Robeson papers at Howard University where James Whale had written to Paul Robeson and said, we've just had the preview of Showboat in Glendale. And it's one of the great experiences of my life as a director. I quote this in the book and uh, that uh, seeing an audience respond to Old Man River was, was really a great experience for him, a spine tingling experience. And uh, so we had a chance to see that, but then the afternoon they ran the other ones like Bride of Frankenstein and people came and talked. When Bride was shown, Elsa Lanchester came. When One More River was shown, Jane Wyatt was there, um, et cetera. So uh, 
uh, we got the benefit of talking to some of these people, meeting them, if you will, and seeing these films under ideal optimal conditions at that time. And uh, so that's what really got me interested in him was not just seeing the horror, film, but seeing the vast expanse of what he was capable of at that time. I think that's kind of interesting because you and I were the same way then. It was just seeing these other works and realizing he's not just a horror genre. He is. Yeah. Yeah. I, and genres. I think that, I think that I think that's uh, true, and I think that's one of the reasons I really got interested in him is that he wasn't a, a, a one-note uh, artist. He was somebody who uh, really understood the form, had a great instinctive uh, approach to it. And uh, it's interesting because two of the most cinematic and interesting directors of the early 30s were both guys that came from the theater. They didn't have a great background in film. One of them was Ruben Mullion, and the other was James Whale. And... Uh, so they took their theatrical backgrounds and uh, they were able to apply that to the new medium of talking pictures and, and produce, a, in both cases, a distinctive and singular body of work. And, and since we're talking about Showboat, um, the cinematography of Showboat, especially the Old yeah. Main River, with the almost 360 degree yeah, spanning. It was just, it's just amazing. I just, I, I just watch it, and the, and the song finishes, and I'm like, I'm going to mm -hmm. rewatch that again. That's the one good thing about having a Blu-ray, and you can just, you know, okay, let me just go right yeah. back, and yeah. the, and and also the the cutting of what was going on with the song as Paul Robeson singing it, and you can't well, sing the, it the better little, than him. <laughs> the, you know, the little clips where he's acting out bits of it, you know, which are done in a, a hugely expressionistic style, you know. Uh, uh, it, you can really tell that James Whale is behind the camera when something like that is uh, on screen. And uh, But at the same time, it's just one of the, the great movie musicals. Uh, he handles the material beautifully. Uh, the cast wasn't crazy about him. Uh, he, he really did not uh, seem to them to be qualified to do it. And uh, they had all done it previously on the stage. And so uh, I think there was tension there. But... Uh, the uh, the result was worth all the trouble. No one else could have done it as well. I think. I think I think it's because he had that theater background and and hadn't done several movies prior to this. Yeah, knew how he wanted to bring it in, and I remember reading somewhere where Irene Dunn did say she had a lot of doubts about his ability, but then the song with um, uh, Make Believe. With yeah. Alan Young, she said it was like Romeo and Juliet, the way it was all staged yeah, and well, filmed. Uh, and she was just amazed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, uh, he, he had a unique way of visualizing these things. And it was different from the stage show. And at the same time, it did not diminish the uh, heritage these people brought with them. You know, you had Winning Juris Captain Andy. You had Irene Dunn who had played it on the road. Uh, Robeson, of course, for whom the part was written. Uh Helen Morgan, for God's sake, uh, everybody was just, uh, it, it's, it's one of those things where you see um, the original cast. It's not necessarily a movie cast. It's a theatrical cast that, of people who came into the movies and were available for it. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really, what, it was a marvelous experience that night in 75, and I still enjoy it immensely every time I look at it. And I'm glad Criterion did what they did with it. They, they did a good job. I, I was kind of a, a, a 
jerk about it when it came to the time they wanted to film me and I didn't want to do it, but uh, it came out okay. And, and so a lot of editing time. Well, your, your part was worked well because I mean, it was, it was interspaced with different clips of the movies that you were talking about <laughs> or the movie. And I, I enjoyed it. And I think you're too tough on yourself. See, I have the face for radio and the voice for a silent movie. So I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, no, it's just that I'm not, I'm not good at it the way say Leonard Malton is good at it. And so uh, she made me look better than I deserve. I'll put it that way because uh, it's been cut together in such a way that it, it looks articulate, but uh, it's not, it's not one of my core core capabilities. I'm afraid. Well, wait, what did I always say with actors? I never blame an actor because it, a lot of it could be the editing. It can make you look yeah. really good. It can make you look really bad. And, you know, it was just average. It, it's, it's a lot well, of you know, I, I, did, I did the same thing because I, when I started work on Buster Keaton, I was, and I was writing the early part of it. And Keaton is one of those people. I always write in chronological sequence. I know people who do this work who um, – um, will write, say, okay, five pages in 1912, and then 16 pages in 1934, and 12 pages in 1920, and 18 pages in 1950, and they they do it out of order, and then it comes together somehow, and I can't do that. I've got to go chronologically, so I start at page one, and I just keep going, and I build the story as I, as I go, and uh, so... With Keaton, since everything is available on video in one form or another, I was going to watch the films in order, and I had not seen all of them. I had seen a good representative sampling of them, but I had not seen all of them. And so I was still in the vaudeville period uh, of the three Keatons, and uh, I hadn't gotten yet to 1917 when he made the transition to uh, movies. And so I hadn't looked at anything yet. I'd seen things a long time ago, but I purposely avoided them wanting to see them fresh. And that's when Peter Bogdanovich was putting together his documentary, The Great Buster, and with all the Cohen uh, holdings, which are pristine and based upon what Raymond Rohauer had when he died. And I, I know Peter slightly because we have the same editor at Knopf. And... Uh, so his assistant called me one day and I, I knew that he was doing this film and Peter would like you to go on camera for this. And I said, here's the problem with it. I haven't seen any of the films. I don't know the material yet. I will know the material at some point, but the timing is lousy. Uh, so please tell Peter, thank you. I appreciate it, but I can't do it. I, I'm not prepared to do it. And so she went away, and two days later, the phone rang, it was Peter. And he said, Jim, can you help me out on this? And I said, Peter, I haven't seen any of the stuff you want me to talk about yet. I'll make a fool of myself and wreck your movie. So there's kind of a pause. He says, can you come in on Tuesday? <laughs> so I literally, and my wife can tell you this because she saw me go through it, I literally had to cram like I was doing a final back in college, you know, where you, you, you stuff yourself with everything and then you forget it five minutes after the, mm -hmm. uh, the exam is over. And I literally watched some of the Buster Keaton features I'd never seen before at fast speed just to see what was in them. And I'm scribbling notes. And when I showed up on Tuesday for the on-camera bit, 
business, I had the stack of notes sitting just out of camera range that I was going to refer to because I didn't know the stuff. I didn't know the material. I was, I was vamping as much as I possibly could. So Peter says, I'll protect you. Don't worry. Okay. Thank you. And so we did it and, and that's, it came out. Okay. And, uh, but, uh, if you see that doc, uh, what you see there is me sweating bullets because I didn't know what I was talking about. And it was not a pleasant sensation, but uh, it, came, it came out of that, I guess. But also, that was my first introduction to say, uh, go west, which has turned out to be one of my favorite Keaton features. And I'd never seen it before, but I had to watch it at fast speed. That's not the way to be introduced to something like that. So that was kind of a, a, a pothole in the roadway to... Uh, the Keaton biography, but uh, it, it worked out ultimately. It sounds like you're thrown, sounds like you're thrown into the deep end of the swimming pool and said, "Swim, man, swim." Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's true. That's true. So, uh, well, it turned out okay. I think I, I think the book is solid. I'm I'm happy with it. So, uh, it's taking shape nicely. Now you're you're headed into Frankenstein, and I want to notice. I, I noticed that. Common Cleave was in Journey's End in the stage, mm-hmm. the movie, and in Frankenstein. How close were James Whale and Colin? Um, at, you know, like were they close, or was it just like like a, a person he knew oh, real no, well no. as an actor? I I I think he was a favorite of uh, James Whale's, and uh, James Whale had certainly a great deal of responsibility for any stardom that Colin Clive achieved. You know, Colin Clive, uh, his most prominent thing on the British stage before Journey's End was he was uh, a secondary character in Showboat in, in England. So if you went to London in 1928-29 and saw uh, Paul Robeson in the London production of Showboat because he, didn't, he, he wasn't in the Ziegfeld version, um, the actor playing Steve was Colin Clive. Really? And, uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, so, uh, when they did Colin, they went, when they did journey's end out here, James Whale wanted to make the film with Colin Clive. And, um, as I point out in the book, uh, Dr. Frankenstein is essentially Captain Stanhope. There are a lot of the same qualities to the personality, uh, Dr. Frankenstein isn't necessarily drinking, but he doesn't need to drink in order to be overwrought in Frankenstein. And uh, uh, so there's a continuum there. You can see how uh, Captain Stanhope gave birth to Frankenstein, uh, Dr. Frankenstein, just as you can see that James Whale played a role in the 1928 West End production of A Man with Red Hair by Ben Levy. And in it, he played this demented son of Charles Lawton. Uh, kind of a hulking sort of uh, 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 shuffling character. And uh, when James Whale retained Boris Karloff to play the Frankenstein monster, uh, I'm convinced without any question whatsoever that James Whale developed that performance with Karloff based upon his own experience playing uh, in The Man with Red Hair uh, several years previous to that. So you can see a lot of things if you go back and look at James Whale's experience and his uh, resume on stage. You can see where a lot of those things connect later on when he comes to Hollywood and starts making these films and he draws upon those people. Old Dark House is another example of that because uh, virtually 
all the British actors, with the exception of Boris Karloff, that are in the film, are people he had worked with on stage in London. It's, Rotten it's, among them, you know. Yeah, you know, so it's amazing when you look at it and you see the the, the history. Because, like, when I read your book, and you can you start mm-hmm. to piece these things together, and it's like this begat this, which begat this, and it's like it all mm-hmm. starts to make sense. And I think for a lot of our listeners, they don't realize that, and and they're hearing this for the first time. And yeah, and I think it it, it changes, it adds nuance to when you watch the movie again to realize how much impact whale had in 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 that film and, other and, and, you, and you can see the roots of that in his stage work and uh uh you're aware of the new um, video release of full dark house i assume yes i got that one and um i'm looking forward to rewatching it i watched it when it first came out when i first got it when it first was released and mm-hmm. um when i started to get an idea about doing this retrospective i was like i'm gonna hold like you i want to have that fresher take just before i do the review with that. And I want to have a, one, a filmmaker joining me. And so I'm really curious to get a filmmaker's point of view, watching that movie and my, the list, the, not the listener, but the viewer's point of view. And I think that's what makes yeah. it nice. Well, the thing I'm proud of about that, and it dates back 21 years um, when they were really, they were originally going to put it out on VHS and laser disc. This is in the mid nineties. And um, so they called me and asked me if I would do the commentary track for Old Dark House. A friend, a, a friend of ours, mutual friend, recommended me to them. I had never done a commentary track, uh, so this is going to be a new experience. But I thought, okay, I'll try it and see. Not again, not a, not one of my core talents. And um, but I said to them, you know, there's still a cast member left alive. No, they had no idea. The producer, Scott Campbell, and I said, yeah, Gloria Stewart is still alive. This is her second film. And he, he said, do you think she, I said, I suspect she would if you approach her and asked her nicely. And I gave gave him her number. She lived on Bundy in, in Los Angeles, Beverly, uh, uh, West LA. And um, so they called her and said, would you mind doing this? And she said, sure, I'll do it. I'm the only one still breeding. I should. Yeah. And... Um, she was very funny. And so uh, we got together one day um, out at her house. She lived right across the street from where the OJ mur- murders took place on Bundy. And uh, lived on a corner, her house was on a corner there, just across the street from the townhouse where that whole business happened. And um, so we ran the film for her with the sound off. Once we mic'd her and said, just say whatever comes into your mind. So we got that. Then we went back and pulled significant scenes, rewound the tape. And we would show her significant scenes like the business with Eva Moore, where she says, that's good stuff, that little rotten, the, the mirror stuff that uh, goes on. And I would ask her specific questions about doing that scene, that sequence. What do you remember about this? And did they talk about this, et cetera? And uh, she would answer those questions, and then they went back and they cut everything together, and they took my questions out. And so that's how we got the commentary track for that film. And, and we waited until we could get a better print of Old Dark House for the laser disc. It was not the same one they used, which is the one they used for the video release was dark, and it was the same 
uh, low quality print that they were uh, showing on TCM at the time. It's the Raymond Rohauer version of the uh, old dark house in effect. And we waited and we got a better one, a 16 millimeter that was taken off the 35 millimeter print that is now the one that they've used for the new one. And um, so I thought, well, this is better than what they've got otherwise. And one of these days, the Library of Congress print will become available and they'll have Gloria's commentary to go with it at that point. I didn't think it would take 21 years for it to happen, but that's what happened. But it was great for Gloria. Uh, they paid her $500 for doing it. And um, one of the first people to buy the laser disc when it came out was James Cameron. And he listened to her commentary track and called her into audition for Titanic. And that's how she got the part of Old Rose and Titanic and an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress. And that's all from that uh, laser disc. And now both of those tracks have been carried over to the uh, new Cohen uh, version. So uh, we've got, got now a pristine copy of the film to go with Gloria's commentary. That is just amazing how things happen and one thing leads to another. <laughs> it's like, the, you know, it, it's, you know, he's watching, it's like, Oh, let's bring her in for that. Cause a lot, you know, you hate to say it, but for a lot of people, they'd remember her as the lady in Titanic and they, um, then hopefully go back to see the body of work, but you know it, it's 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 amazing how people will remember certain actors for different performances, and it might not always be the one you you think that they'll be remembered for, but it's you know. <laughs> you know she she had done some other films uh, more recently. She's in my favorite year with Peter O'Toole, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and uh, so she had a, she had a good long varied career and. Uh, but Old Dark House was her second film, I believe. And uh, so she had vivid memories of it. And it was great to have someone like that doing a running commentary as the film is unspooling. I always think the best commentary tracks are the ones that are like whoever is talking is sitting on the couch next to you as they're watching the film, you know, and they're saying, oh, I remember about this or this is how this happened or et cetera. I, I think it's a wonderful experience to have. And I think it's a wonderful experience uh, or it's a wonderful thing to capture those when possible and Gloria is the only one out of all of those universal films of that genre that was able to do that that's the only one that exists of running commentary by one of the original participants I'm very proud of that I'm glad you um I'm, I'm very happy that you were able to say to them well why don't you get her because if you wouldn't have said that it, it never would have happened and then well, I tried to weasel out of the commentary at that point. Now that you've got her, you don't need me. No, we want to do you also. Okay, so we did it. But I, I, I've been asked to do some sense, and I've always turned them down. It's not fun. It's a lot of work and doesn't pay anything. Not that I need the money necessarily, but it's just it, there are other people enjoy that stuff. I don't. It, it takes a special person that wants to do a commentary and, and that does it well. And I think when you're lucky to have a person from the film with it, if you can set them up and then you can get them to focus on those scenes mm-hmm. and give them mm-hmm. that focus. I think sometimes I remember there was a commentary. It was just William Shatner by himself of a movie he hadn't seen probably in a long time. Um, and it, they, they just had him on it doing the commentary. Nobody was there with him and it showed because he, you know, he talked about certain things, but he was, he was kind of rudderless, you know, and, and I think if he would have had a person there to, to guide him to the different things, yeah. it would have worked better. 
Well, that's that's what we did with Gloria, and and, and uh, you don't hear me on it, uh, which is good. It's a bit, that's appropriate, uh, I think. Uh, she did pretty well by herself without just reacting to what she saw on the screen, but by going in and punching it up afterwards and adding those two things together, it, it, it gave you the spontaneity of the first take and the detail of the second. And that, I think, is pretty much an ideal way of doing it. Well, At agree. least for most people, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, but everybody has a different thing with commentary. Some people like one thing. It's like movies. Eh, you, you please some, yeah. you don't please others. You know, it's the way yeah. it is. I like the running, I like the running commentaries, the one that are done in real time. Uh, and I've, I've made a point of getting them when I had them. I still got my LaserDisc uh, machine. In fact, I've got two of them. And one of the advantages of doing the old Dark House laser is it prompted me to actually buy a player. And um, they didn't, they couldn't afford to pay me any money for doing it. I did it for the experience. But they said, anything we have in our warehouse, you can have for $10 a disc. Now, you might remember back to the days of the laser disc when they were out. And the big box sets were $130. They were, they were not cheap. And so I just ordered a bunch of stuff and I was very conscious of the commentary tracks and, um, and especially with Criterion, some of the old ones, well, I'll use an example because this, this relates to a book I did, Spencer Tracy. Um, Criterion at one time had the rights to a uh, bad day at Blackrock. And, and if you had the Criterion disc, laser disc, now I must uh, uh, emphasize, the commentary track was the director, John Sturgis, talking all the way through it. Valuable, wonderful stuff. Terrific. Um, but at some point, Criterion lost the rights to the film. They owned the rights to the commentary track, but they didn't have the film to go with it. So that went out of print. Nowadays, if you buy uh, Bad Day of Black Rock on DVD, there's some academic doing the 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 track. Uh, you can only hear the John Sturges track if you go back and get the laser disc and have a machine to play it on, unfortunately. Uh, and that's true in other instances as well. Uh, uh, the Todd A.O. version of Oklahoma uh, is it? Oh, yeah, Oklahoma, which was done uh, in alternate takes from the other version of Oklahoma that was done. Uh, I, it's my understanding the pr the print material on that has now turned pink. You, it's not salvageable anymore, at least I guess without a, a, a extreme digital makeover. But when it was still viewable, they did the laser disc with the Todd Ao masters. So if you want to see the Todd Ao version of Oklahoma and uh, not the alternate 35 millimeter version, you've got to have the laser disc to do that and et cetera. So there, there are cases like that where media, as you go through it all and everything seems to get obsolete after a few years. Uh, now DVDs are going away. If you want something, you have to buy Blu-ray because they won't sell it to you as DVD. Uh, then uh, you've got to have some of this old legacy media, I like to call it. And uh, so I'm, I'm full of it in this house. I've got cassette decks and uh, laser disc players and uh, all kinds of things. Turntable, of course, those are coming back now. So, uh, uh, but anyway, sometimes I feel foolish because I'm, I'm kind of like a retro, uh, uh, this is this is the kind of equipment you'd have in one of uh, Hugh Hefner's apartments in 1965 or something, you know? Yeah. 
Now, um, let's see. We talked about Frankenstein and then um, the old Dark House. Of course, a lot of people consider James Whale's masterpiece is Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. And what, what, yeah. What, now, I know... He he was little. He, I know after Bride of Frankenstein, he wanted him to do the um, Dracula's Daughter, but he was worried about getting stuck in the horror genre. Was he worried about that when he got offered to do the sequel to Frankenstein, and he came up with Bride of Frankenstein? What was his thought processes going into that? Well, I, I, I think he was. I think he was interested in tackling the subject from a different vantage point. Uh, Frankenstein is very straightforward in a lot of ways. Uh, stylistically, it's different than Dracula. There's a lot that he does with cutting that uh, was beyond the, the pale for most guys of that, that era. Um, with Bride of Frankenstein, if you run the two side by side, or I mean, you run Frankenstein first and look at Bride, you see immediately that the style has changed to some degree. It's gotten um, denser. Uh, there's a lot more going on there. Uh, the subtexts are different uh, and deeper. Uh, Stylistically, he's moving the camera a lot more. He's got the freedom to do things that he didn't have maybe the first time around. They had set set the premise up in the first film to such an extent that they didn't need to go back to much of that. So they could take the creature and move forward with the story. Um, Frankenstein, of course, was inspired by the novel, but uh, also by the screen, the stage adaptations that... Uh, date back as far as Mary Shelley's lifetime. It was a piece of uh, dramatic work uh, uh, back in the 1830s, a uh, long time before the uh, the film was made. Uh, but Bride also was inspired by an episode in the book because uh, the, the monster wants him to make him a mate, and uh, he does it, although he's repulsed by the idea of it. And... Uh, but that was a starting point for this, and and you get the sense of it. Uh, David Lewis, uh, I remember, described it as a hoot, and that James Whale probably thought of it as a hoot as well. But it's a it's a beautifully accomplished hoot, and uh, there are just things in it. it I, I've always said that a good film gets a little bit worse every time you see it because you start to see the the chewing gum and the uh, scotch tape and things that are uh, were, were, were used to put it together. A great film gets better every time you see it because you start to see more in it. And Bride of Frankenstein is like that. It's a great film. Uh, you watch it a number of times. You always see new things and you know, little little touches that you didn't see before. It's that rich. And uh, Showboat is another one like that. You know, there, there are several in his uh, canon that uh, you can say that about. Yeah, and one of the things I wanted to ask you, um, as as it's known, um, James Whale was a, was an openly gay man at a time when it yeah. was very rare to be openly yeah. gay. Um, there's been a lot of interest, you know, like people looking back at The Bride of Frankenstein with the subtext. Like, did he mean this to be that or this? And I was curious, from your research, were you able to find anything that could, you know, point us into what, what he was going for or was it, is it always going to be unknown? Well, it's, it's tempting to look for that and you can, if you want to split enough hairs, you can find anything you're looking for uh, in something like that. I think he was not 
if you asked him, for instance, he would be appalled and angry that he was remembered today for being homosexual as opposed for being an artist. And I think that was, he, he was a man of the theater. He was a man who considered himself first and foremost an artist, uh, no matter what medium he uh, 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 chose to address. Um, and I think his instincts throughout were those of a theatrical figure who uh, was working in this medium of film and had the background that he had. Um, so would they have turned out different were he not gay? Perhaps, you know, you can look at it from different vantage points. Uh, but uh, was it the deciding factor in how his films came out? I don't think so. I really don't think so. Uh, and he would certainly not say so. Uh, uh, he, I, I believe since I did talk to a lot of people who knew him well and intimately, that uh, he would have rejected that kind of thinking about his his work. He would have rejected it. And uh, and the people who were asked about it stuck around and asked about were asked about later years, like Curtis Harrington, for instance, um, said the same thing. And uh, I never got to meet him myself. Obviously, he died in 1957. I was something like three years old, four years old. Um, but uh, I feel pretty certain that his attitude would be one of dismissive uh, annoyance as much as anything. Uh, that's That doesn't apply here, you would say. <laughs> and, I, and I know what you mean. There are people that will look at certain subject matters or certain movies and they'll put other things into it that might not have intentionally been there by the filmmaker, might unintentionally been there by the filmmaker, or it just might be times have changed and people will do it. And, you know, I guess you can look at it as when you do a work of art, which to me yeah. the cinema is, people will look at it and they'll have their own perspective. And when they're looking at that work of art, they're bringing their personal beliefs and things into it. And they're going to take it and look at it one way, which might be different than what the creator of the work of art was looking for that. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and the sensitivities involved and who, who's viewing it and what what they're bringing in terms of a background to it. Uh, um, I I'm not criticizing people who who want to look at it that way and find these things. Uh, I just think my job is to put forth first and foremost James Whale's uh, attitude, and I'm pretty comfortable in. Uh, uh, saying that about him based upon all the people I talked to and, uh, you, you know, the business about, uh, and David mentioned this initially, the, the gay uh, liberation fight, and uh, which was just kind of starting to build a bit back when I first met David in the mid-70s. And uh, uh, he said, Jimmy would want nothing to do with this. He, he would, he would, he would uh, stand away from that. He, he, and I asked, I asked uh, uh, John Latham about that later, who uh, knew Whale during the same period. He said he would not join in at all. It just absolutely flat out. But at the same time, he was very open, as I point out in the book. And uh, uh, there was a period of time uh, during Prohibition and after where uh, being gay was not stigmatized as much as it later became. Uh, 
there are a lot of really crackpot histories of that period and of gay history that really are more uh, someone's idea of what it should have been like rather than what it was like. Uh, I've talked to other people who were uh, around back then, and uh, Ed Montaigne being one of them, who later uh, was, uh, who, who worked as an assistant director on a couple of James Whale's movies. He worked on The Man in the, Man in the Iron Mask, for instance, and uh, he, he, when I mentioned I talked to Jack Latham, he said, oh, they knew Jack Latham, sure, and uh, he said, you know, back in those days, we didn't think about things like that. You know, everybody just kind of went their own way at night. And, you know, it, it was not something that anybody, and there was certainly a lot of gay filmmakers in uh, the industry back then. And the people who want to say, well, you know, their sexual orientation damaged their careers. Well, no, wait a second here. I don't know a director's career that was longer or more distinguished than George Cooper's. Um, James Whale had a good run. We look at it now and say, well, gee, it's too bad he didn't keep working. Um, I think at a point he lost interest in it, but, but uh, 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 there were a lot of good, solid, gay filmmakers out there who did very well in, in the medium. And um, there's a good book on the subject, not of gay Hollywood, but it's called Gay New York. And it's written by an actual historian, not not a crackpot. And uh, he, he points out an interesting fact, which didn't occur to me initially, which was police departments during prohibition beefed up in order to do that kind of enforcement. And when prohibition was repealed, they had all these extra people. It was the middle of the depression at that point. Uh, what do you do? Do you lay them off? No, you find something else for them to go after. And so that's when the bar rate started. And that makes perfect sense uh, on a lot of levels. Uh, so they had to gin up the outrage, if you will. And, uh, that was an aspect of it. But uh, Gay New York, I would recommend highly anybody who's interested in the background of all that because he got back in that era and documented it. And, and he's on the East Coast, not the West Coast, but there's a lot that applies uh, uh, out here as well, I think. It's too bad no, nobody. I thought at one point he was going to do the same thing with Los Angeles. For some reason, it hasn't happened. That's interesting. And, and the reason I bring that up is because I wanted to get what you're going to be the closest one we can get to right any, any nowadays as what might he James well have been thinking and doing. And I think that'll help people out, you know, from you talking mm-hmm. to people that actually knew him firsthand. Well, it gets, it helps with yeah. that perspective because it's hard when you move farther and farther away from anybody that's still alive or and things like that, the stories start to get muddled and, and then people will, I think it's like the telephone game. What are they doing intentionally and unintentionally? Things can get altered in, in various retellings. And that's where it's nice where everything's written down in a book format because yeah. everybody yeah. can go back to the source and you can read that, which you talk to a lot of other sources and a lot of documentation to go through. Yeah. Well, I've started on a project recently of uh, digitizing my old interview tapes also because uh, taping, has a finite life to it, and uh, I was getting a little concerned about the early ones I had done uh, 
back in the mid seventies because I wasn't conscious of using good equipment or good tape, although most of it was scotch I found. But um, um, the uh, terror that I had about uh, maybe seeing this stuff uh, unplayable, you know, I went back to it again. So I, I, I bought an old tape deck, which you can find on eBay. You know, the, a guy will take these things and recondition them, knows what he's doing, and then he puts them up on eBay. So I bought one. Uh, it works beautifully. And uh, so I just started digitize i've digitized all the james well interviews now that i did so all of those have been done uh i'm starting on preston sturgis next uh so i i try to do i went through a period where i was trying to get one done a day so i go back and put it on and then go off and do other things come back you know and uh so slowly i'm doing that that'd be great because it, it, it's one of the reasons like i like to interview people on our podcast is to get that recorded and i have the copies but at least you know by sharing it to everybody it's 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 out there for people to follow along because that to me i think you you're the same way is you want to get this information out there for people that want to know and or Mm -hmm. students in film and history or actors so they can Mm -hmm. know what's going on and i think it's just it's to me it's fascinating and everybody's not is it going to fascinate Mm -hmm. everybody no it is you know it's it, it is what it is, but everybody has their passions. Mm-hmm. Now showboat was, we talked about that earlier. I was curious, Paul Robeson, from what I've read, he and James whale must've hit it off. Like they liked each other a lot. And um, they were buddies. Yeah. They were going to do another film together. It didn't come together, but uh, uh, showboat was at right at the end of, the period of time when James Well had carte blanche at Universal. The Lemley sold out. Showboat was the last film that was released with Carl Lemley's name on it. Uh, Junior Lemley told me that he prepared My Man Godfrey and left the studio the day they started shooting My Man Godfrey. So that gives you kind of an idea of when things happened. Um, James Well went on after Showboat to make um, The Road Back. And that turned into a total fiasco on many levels. Uh, he did a couple of good films after that. I think The Great Garrick is awfully good that he did. It's probably the last really first-rate James Whale movie. Um, later, Man in the Iron Mask. Yeah, it's well done, but it's not stylistically the same. Um, and then shortly after that, he pretty much stepped away from it all. And Fortunately, he was well off enough that he didn't need to work. It was more a question of what else he was going to do with himself. From what I remember from reading in your book, for, from my point of view, from digesting it, and this has been a few years now, um, mm-hmm. it seemed after Showboat, the suits got involved, the producers. And I think that's yeah. what really turned him off, I think, on filmmaking. Well, the money people, and what happened was that there was a new set of management figures at Universal, and they were calling the shots. And there was, James Whale was able to get to the point where he would trade off, for instance, he would agree to do something like Showboat in exchange for doing Dracula's Daughter, let's say, and that that was kind of the, the devil's bargain, if you will. And that was just coming up toward the end because, uh, uh, you know, he was still around at the time of Son of Frankenstein, and it was never considered that he would do it. And David told me, as a matter of fact, that he didn't think he would do it if they asked him to, but uh, he, he, he was done with that subject matter. But uh, uh, 
he was very much uh, uh, unhappy at Universal after the change came. And uh, so he never had the opportunity to make films again in high style as he did there. The, the, like I said, Ray Garrick was the last one that I think is really, really stylistically uh, as good as anything he ever did. And that was at Warner Brothers. And I'm going to bring up this question. I think I already know the answer to it from what you said earlier, but I just want to make sure it's definitive. Is So I think we um, are both in agreement or going from your research that he, his career ended because of the producers fighting, losing interest, and it was not because of his um, sexuality. No, it was not. It was not that at all. I think that's silly. Uh, they didn't care what you did in your spare time, so long as you stayed out of the newspapers, and uh, which Cukor did not do sometimes, I must point out. Uh, as long as you stayed out of the newspapers and did your job. And that was the extent of it, I think. Uh, uh, it's tempting to work that into the picture because of the modern sensibilities, but uh, I, I don't think it really worked that way. I think that uh, people were perfectly happy to give people jobs so long as they delivered, and ultimately came down to artistic vision and commercial and between the two uh if you delivered they didn't care what you did in your spare time that's what i thought as preston sturgis said as preston sturgis said as long as they don't do it in the streets and scare the horses you know and i I figured that's what you were going to say but i just wanted to put it out there you know so that way people that are listening you know can get an idea that you know, companies love you. No, as t- long as tell you're me, money and tell they want me you to why, the line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tell me why George Cukor was still making films in 1982. That was that was the case. You know, it just it doesn't make sense if you apply that standard to it. Uh, it you know, it, and everybody knew in the business who was gay. You know, and who who wasn't, and uh, so there. And this, again, is based upon my knowing and talking to people of that generation, meaning men who were born around the turn of the century, like David. David was born in 1903. So uh, uh, everybody knew who was, what was what inside the industry, you know, but it stayed there. Exactly. And, and, and again, you know, I didn't mean you know, to repeat it, but I was just making sure that people knew you know, pretty yeah. much what why his film career ended because pretty much he didn't like where he was being pushed to do, and he decided, as you said, he lost interest in that because I think of the the, the pressure from the producers. I like to call them the suits. You know, people wanting you to they're trying to tell you what to do, but mm-hmm. they really don't know what it's like an artistic side. Well, well, consider what happened with him uh, after Road Back. He went off. David was at uh, Warner's at the time producing films and. He arranged to get James Whale hired to direct Great Garrick. Um, he was still he still owed Universal too. They wanted to uh, abrogate the contract, and he wasn't going to let them do it because they were going to have to pay him a lot of money. And they were just hoping he'd walk away. He would. All we've got for you to do are little B pictures, is what they said. And he said, "I just love little B pictures." So he did two films, little B films that he, um, he called his punishment pictures, uh, um, Sinners in Paradise, which is probably the worst movie he ever directed. 
and Wives Under Suspicion, which is a remake of Kiss Before the Mirror, which is pretty good. It's not bad for a little little uh, deep picture, and it's got a good cast, and it's well done. Um, Sinners in Paradise is just junk, and he knew it was junk. Uh, but that ended his his time at Universal. He went and did uh, Man in the Iron Mask and had a terrible time with Edward Small, and that caused him to withdraw a bit. Uh, uh, Louis Hayward told me a story that Whale would sit uh, underneath the camera there and smoke a puff on a cigar while they were shooting, and the, the uh, cinematographer would say, uh, Mr. Whale, the cigar smoke is going to show in the shot. And he said, he said, no, nah, they won't see it. Don't worry about it. And he just, just kind of checked out on that film. He got it done. He had a percentage on it, incidentally. So he made a lot of money on that film. Um, but look at, look at that. After that, he had a bad experience on that one. Then he goes to do Green Hell, which was savaged by everybody. It was a big deal film, but it was very badly written. And, uh, then he went off to Columbia and was fired by Harry Cohen after about four days on it. And uh, I think he rubs some people the wrong way. He could be very uh, cutting in what he had to say to people. Um, I learned uh, Charles Brackett's diaries were published years ago. A friend of mine uh, transcribed and edited them. And Charles Brackett was producer of a film called The Uninvited, which was a very, very good ghost film. And um, Brackett wrote in one of his diary entries that he had had lunch that day with David Lewis and James Whale and was talking story about the uninvited. He said Jimmy Whale had some great ideas uh, that he made suggestions for the uninvited. He said, I would love to have him direct the film, but Buddy De Silva doesn't like him. Buddy De Silva is in charge of production at that time at Paramount. Uh, so that was a non-starter, but it would have been great to have James Whale direct the other. But now Lewis Allen did a good job with it. We're not uh, quarreling with it. It's a good film. Um, but uh, uh, imagine having James Whale direct a film like that. And uh, But it was at the point where he had pissed off a lot of people. So uh, it had nothing to do with uh, being gay. It was uh, simply, as Alan Napier put it at one point, he had gotten to the point where his name might come up in a production meeting and, and someone might say, oh, can't we get somebody else? And he said that that was probably where he got to. And so he went off and uh, did other things. He painted and he did theatrical work. And now before we get to, before we get to his painting and, 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 and at the end of his life, from what, yeah. you, from what you researched, I remember from the book, he wrote down, I think, two lists of movies. And, oh, that's right. At the beginning, that's when Gavin Lambert uh, met him. Yeah, and um, I think I, I think you can pretty much guess from the one list what are, what are the movies that he really loved doing, and from the other list, you can guess the movies that he didn't care for. Um, well, I what, I think I think I think what he was doing there was saying these are the ones I had my way with; they left me alone, and these are the ones that screwed they screwed up. So for, that was basically what he was putting forth. So judging from what you've read about him, what do you think he would look at as, as his, like if he wanted people to remember him for certain movies, does it, does his oh, list match obvious. up with the, the, the list we think of? 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think all the obvious ones, you know, showboated. Uh, he liked Remember Last Night a lot. He was fond of that one. That's not a, everybody's cup of tea. I like it a lot myself, and it's the one he did between Bride and Showboat. And so he was stylistic at the peak of his powers, and uh, I think it shows. I like that film a lot uh, as well. Um, Greg Garrick would probably be on there. I think he was very, very happy with that one. Uh, didn't do any business, but it was a good film, et cetera. So I, I'm sure the, the, the basic ones would be the same as we might imagine. It's pretty easy to tell the difference. Oh, it is. And I, and I, and I, when we, when I was doing the showboat review of the, um, of Rod Barnett, who's the podcaster I did with yesterday, I put it as mm-hmm. his last great masterpiece in my opinion was showboat. You know, like he had a lot of masterpieces to me it was like the last masterpiece of his of his work, you know, that I've seen so far. If you go about, you know, the yeah. stuff, I don't know what you think. I would personally say great Garrett. So, so what would you think would be like that? Like, you know, like his masterpieces, like, I mean, the showboat, the great Garrick, Bride of Frankenstein, Frankenstein, anything yeah. else? Yeah. Well, well, there, there are some high points of course, but, uh, I think all four of the horror films are, are, are on there. And, uh, um, the film he made after Frankenstein and Patient Maiden, I'm sure he wouldn't put that on his list. That was just a job of work. Uh, Waterloo, uh, Kiss Before the Mirror, probably. Uh, uh, One More River was a very personal film to him, uh, I think. Uh, uh, Road Back was uh, a thing of sorrow to him, I think. He, he envisioned as pulling off something really spectacular, and it didn't work. Uh, Man in the Iron Mask, that's kind of an iffy one, whether it would be on his good list or bad list. Uh, it was apparently not a pleasant uh, uh, film to make, but uh, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure wh- what list that would have been on, but uh, most of them it's pretty easy to tell. In fact, I think I think he would have put Wives Under Suspicion, which was originally just called Suspicion, on the good list because uh, it, he did take some care with it and he wanted to do he wanted to take uh, Kiss Before the Mirror and redo it. Uh, he's had some different ideas about it. And so uh, uh, that was one he, he figured that he would prepare carefully on and do it. And, and it's it's a very watchable movie. Excellent. Because you know, I know a lot, a lot of people listening to our cast love to hear different movies and um, – or not see, but see different movies, and that way they can go and, and seek them out. And you said he moved – I know – he moved into um, his other creative side, which would be artwork, when he mm-hmm. retired from film work. And what else did he what, did he do? Anything else um, that you know, of, like you know, when he was in his latter years? Well, he he, did, he directed theater uh, during the war. He had a theater company, and so uh, they they took up residence for a while at the Los Palmas Theater um, off Hollywood Boulevard, which is still there, and uh, he. Um, had a show of one acts and uh, entertainments of like called uh, Playtime. And, uh, and they let in uh, servicemen free of charge. And so that was, that was part of his uh, uh, supporting the war effort. He directed uh, one film at Fort Roach, uh, Al Roach Studios uh, for uh, consumption of, of during the war effort, uh, how to fill out a form or something. I forget now. I talked to one of the actors who was in it. He couldn't remember. Uh, James Whale at all in terms of directing the film, but uh, 
he did a little bit of that sort of work. He directed a play in 1944 on Broadway called Hand in Glove. It was not a hit. Um, in the 50s, he uh, directed a, a play, a new play, a comedy at Pasadena Playhouse out here called Pagan in the Parlor. And then they took it to England and they had trouble with the leading lady in it, uh, Hermione, uh, badly. And so uh, she was drinking heavily and it didn't go into the West End finally, but uh, it, it toured the provinces. Um, he directed a film called Hello Out There in 1949. Actually, 1950, I think is when he made, we determined that. Um, with Harry Morgan and Marjorie Steele. It's uh, uh, William Soroy in one act. Uh, uh, very adeptly done, um, but it's a very theatrical piece. And so he kept busy, but he had his own artist, art studio uh, on his property. And so he would go down there and uh, paint. And uh, he'd get bored sometimes. He would just painting for the sake of painting. There's uh, one painting I've seen, for instance, where he just copied a still from one of his films. And uh, just, just as an exercise, some of those survive. And just before we talk about his end, I just, I just realized one question I was meaning to ask you, and I almost forgot. Thankfully, I, I remembered now is we talked about how Colin Clive, um, May Clark, Boris Karloff, that he really enjoyed working with him and had him in obviously other pictures. Uh, any mm-hmm. other actors that were, you know, and we also talked about Paul Robeson, any other actors that he was really, you know, really enjoyed working with? Well, Dwight Fry was in a lot of his films. He was kind of a talisman, I guess, as much as I mean, he, he's got bit parts in a lot of them where you see him. Um, he was cut out of Bride of Frankenstein to some degree. Uh, he, uh, he's in it, but there was a whole segment that kind of featured him, that spotlighted him, that got cut out after a preview. Uh, but he's a man in the iron mask. He's in some of those other ones. And, uh, so Dwight Fry shows up a great deal. Um, Edward Van Sloan occasionally. Um, who else? He did three films with May Clark. He did three with Gloria Stewart. Um, yeah, you know, he, he, Colin Clyde was part of his group. Uh, so, you know, he had those people. But again, he reached back into his uh, days in the West End and in um, regional theater in England to really populate his films. And, and for instance, he was the first guy to... Uh, uh, Charles Lawton made his uh, U.S. debut in Old Dark House. It didn't come out that way because Lawton was under contract to Paramount, and the proviso was that they couldn't release Old Dark House before they got him in a film first because they wanted the fanfare to go with it. So they had to sit on Old Dark House until the Lawton made his first film for Paramount, which I think was called The Devil in the Deep. And... Uh, and then they were able to release it. So it didn't look like his debut, but it was. I always find it interesting when you get these Hollywood contracts and in the back door, it's like, Oh, you can have him, but we have to have our movie first. And you know, it's. Yeah. 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 Oh, that happened a lot. And, uh, it was just a matter of, you know, who you could get. Uh, David told me one time that, uh, he thought King's Row would have been better with uh, Tyrone Power in place of Bob Cummings. And he said, we actually made the inquiry, but Zanuck wouldn't lend Tyrone Power 
uh, he wanted something like two arrow flins and a Betty Davis or something in exchange for Tyrone Power, some outrageous, you know, trade like that. But that's what they did back then. It was like Monopoly, you know, I'll trade you Boardwalk and Park Place for all four railroads, that sort of thing. So that's the kind of horse trading they did back then. Uh, that's how uh, Fox got uh, Spencer Tracy for um, uh, Stanley Livingston was that the, they thought that they owed him. Uh, what was it? The trade was they got Tracy and Myrna Loy. And then they loaned, uh, what was it, Tyrone Power or something? MGM got one of the big uh, uh, Fox films and they paid very heavy, Fox figures and they paid very heavily. I'm forgetting that story now. Might have been Tyrone Power. Did he do a film at uh, MGM? I'm, I'm trying to remember now. Anyway, don't mind me. I'm just, um, my memory is cloudy on that one. Well, we can't expect you to remember every detail of everything. I mean, that's just that. No, that's just. It's hard enough at the time I'm writing the book, let alone now. And of course, he had he had a very sad ending. Um, I, I believe what he had suffered a couple of strokes and then um, mm. ended his life. Yeah, his, his his health was breaking down, and there was no turning back from that. Uh, so when he made the decision to end his life. Uh, uh, he knew that what was ahead of him was just uh, hospitalization and uh, further dependence on uh, the medical community, and uh, he, he he couldn't sleep. You know, it was, it was just a bad scene, and so uh, that was his way of ending it. Now, you think I asked David this? Well, why did he why did he choose that particular way of doing himself in that? Uh, uh, when he could have, you know, just taken some pills, you know, or something. There, there are, you know, cleaner ways of doing something like that. And David said that he built the swimming pool to give parties. He couldn't swim himself, meaning James Whale couldn't swim. He, he said he weighed in it uh, in the shallow end, but he would, but he feared the water. And so he thought in his way, the, the reason or the way that he uh, uh, approached it was conquering of one last fear that he would throw himself into the water and uh, hit his head on the uh, the floor of the pool. And that's what did it. Uh, so that may well be. I, 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 I'm not sure I use that in the book or not. That, that was his feeling on it. It's something we'll never know exactly why he did what he did at the end, and uh, um, the tarp when you're going for well, we, know, we, we, we we knew why in the sense that he was in ill health and getting sicker, uh, but we don't know the why he picked that particular way of doing it. Exactly, and um, yeah, and the question I'm going to be asking everybody is, what do you think his impact with filmmakers nowadays? You know, from the films that he did. What do you think his impact on the filmmakers that followed him? Well, I think that he pretty much created the template for what uh, at the time could be referred to as the modern horror film. That, that uh, he, It was a way of seeing subject matter and investing it with humor, character, et cetera, in a way that perhaps had not been done previously. Um, 
you know, I can use an example, for instance, this shows you again how Journey's End um, impacted a lot of things that he did later on. Uh, there are a lot of screenwriters on Invisible Man. Uh, R.C. Sheriff, the author of Journey's End, being the credited one, but a lot of people came before that, including Preston Sturgis. Um, and the great thing about Journey's End, the thing that really distinguished it to the people who saw it back in the 20s and it resonated with them so completely was that a lot of it was the day-to-day drudgery of existing under those extraordinary conditions. Uh, Lawrence Olivier was the first actor to play Captain Stanhope. He did it for two performances and then went off and did another thing. And so they, he wasn't available when they got the West End engagement for uh, Journey's End. So they had to find somebody else who turned out to be Colin Clive. But Olivier said to James Whale, there's nothing in it but meals meaning that's the action in the, in the play is that you're, you're taking meals, you're, you're eating beans off of a tin plate. And he said, that's about all we had to look forward to on the front. And, and so he understood the tedium of it and the commonplace. And that's what I said about Journey's End ultimately. It wasn't spectacular in the same way a lot of war films were or would be again. And that includes All Quiet. Um, but it was a tragedy of the everyday mundane, the, the, the tragedy of the commonplace, I think is what I said, which is a good way of putting it, I think. Um, so now you take that same sensibility, you apply it to the Invisible Man. There's a scene in Invisible Man where Claude Rains is describing what it's like to be invisible and how when you go out in the snow, you've got to watch and make sure that your footprints don't show, you know, or that uh, your breath doesn't show, that sort of thing. He's talking about the day-to-day commonplace problems of being invisible that you wouldn't normally. Now, nobody would have thought about that, really. I, you know, I got to go back and look, but I don't think that dialogue is in the H.G. Wells novel. But it's, it's, it's in there, it seems to me, because of Journey's End and the two guys that did Journey's End are applying that kind of outlook, that kind of point of view to a subject that's as fantastic as the Invisible Man. And that's that's the sort of thing I think that is a reverberation from that initial work in 1928 to there they are five years later and they're still using it to influence um, other content, other material. And I doubt there are many filmmakers today who are working in that genre or have worked in that genre in the past who have not at one point or another seen Frankenstein and seen The Bride of Frankenstein and seen The Invisible Man and now have seen The Old Dark House uh, in equally pristine condition and can't take something away from it, you know, in terms of this this is how it was done back in the time. And it's like, you know, watching vintage Hitchcock and you see what here's the master showing you how to do it and you can imagine the same thing with the James Whale and here's the master showing you how to do it I can't think of a better way to, to end um, end it with because like we're going to be ending with his impact and one thing I would do want to mention again for listeners you have a 
the new book coming out February next year, February 2022, Buster Keaton, A, Fil- a Filmmaker's Life. And yeah. you, you want to give like the Reader's Digest the version of what it might be like when it comes out for people to, to entice them to pre-order like I am? Well, well, people, people ask me sometimes why you're doing Keaton. Isn't there enough out there on Keaton? But I think all the biographies that are out there have been bungled to one extent or the other. Um, and most Keaton fanatics will tell you the same thing that they, they felt that none of them rang the bell entirely for various reasons. And, uh, so this was a chance to try to write that wrong, I think, but I really wanted to put the emphasis on what Buster Keaton did from behind the camera as well, uh, because he also like Chaplin wrote or co-wrote and directed or co-directed in some cases, uh, his own films, and he produced just as distinctive a body of work, I think, as Chaplin did. Uh, and I'm not trying to invest this with a sort of Chaplin versus Keaton uh, um, scenario, but I just think that um, part of what you do with a subtitle on the front of a book is that you kind of direct the reader into where the emphasis is going to be. And I didn't want to do another book about the sad clown, you know, with the flat top a flat hat and all that uh and we were very careful you look at the uh, cover design on uh, amazon for instance we don't have that kind of a picture on the cover uh he's in his cities and he's it's a very serious modeled portrait of him which i think goes well uh with the thesis of the book which is this is a man who was a total filmmaker and uh we want to explore not only what he did in front of the camera, but behind the camera and where that sensibility came from. And so that's the emphasis of the book. And so if you want to know the real nuts and bolts of what Buster Keaton did, how he went about his work, what his attitudes were, um, this is about a thorough, as thorough uh, an examination of that as is possible. And so I trust that those are the people who will find that sort of material interesting. Uh, if you if you if you're one of those people who hate some of my previous books, uh, like the people who complain about the length of the Spencer Tracy book, please stay away from it. Okay, well you will both be happier. But uh, if if you like any of the previous things I've done, or, or uh, Keaton intrigues you on a different level than the casual, oh yeah, he's the guy that never smiles. Uh, give it a try. Uh, I'm rather I'm rather pleased with it. I think it's a good good job. If I may say so, myself. and like I said, I'm looking forward to it, and because uh, I really enjoyed the James Whale book, and I know mm-hmm. I'm going to be getting the Spencer Tracy book soon. So, because I, I, I love Spencer Tracy, so I'm just I'm just going to basically be working my way through um, your your book. It's only taking me ten years to get to Spencer Tracy now. <laughs> <laughs> but they're so well researched and I, I think well written where it's, 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 it gives you that's that, uh, what their lives are like. And uh, as, as best we're ever going to know nowadays. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. And I want to thank you for taking your time with me to talk about James Wales. So everybody can get an idea to kick off the retrospective of, of what his life was like. And again, we, you only touched, uh, a little tiny bit of what's in your book and what's out there, you know, for people to, if you want to know more about it, his, the book is out there. It's readily available. James whale, a new world of gods and monsters, James Curtis, 
easy to remember the first name, James and James. I mean, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and listeners, um, join us next episode. I'm glad everybody listened in. But join us next episode. We're going to be doing a movie review, either decided by the roll of a die, or we're going to be doing an interview, or it could be the next episode of the James Whale Retrospective. I hope everybody stays safe, and thank you for listening. Goodbye.